Your attention, please. Paul and Alex are required to proceed to the gate immediately. What? No way. What is happening here? This is the last call for the Layovers podcast. Really? Come on, man. This is our thing. We got this. Oh, yeah. And we made it. Of course, geeks. Hey everyone, Paul here. Now that we had a small technical issue and with no time to re-record this podcast episode due to our heavy travels, I had to use a backup voice track. So please forgive us for the slightly less good quality of sound, but I'm sure you will still enjoy it. Here we go. Flight 58 to Bangkok. Hi, Alex. Bangkok at this time of year must be hot and sticky. Yeah, well, I was there. It's hot and sticky, a bit rainy, and a lot of traffic, actually. So <laughs> I was there very recently. So we're continuing our tour of Asia in the latest episodes, and the next one will still be in Asia because I'm basically spending my whole entire summer in Asia. Uh, yeah, I've done, you seem to be bouncing around all over the place. Yeah, I think I've done almost 50,000 miles in the month of July, and that's just being oh. back and forth. I should have just stayed in Asia, actually. You not come back to London. <laughs> yeah, you just exactly. I was just gonna say that you should need to rent a little apartment and just stay, stay there. <laughs> Fifty thousand miles in one month—that's crazy. Well, actually, you know, remember for those of you who listened to us since the beginning of this year, I said that I wanted to travel slightly less. So I'm still traveling less compared to last year, for instance. But obviously, when you have a month like that, I'm suddenly catching up very, very quickly. Yeah. So, but you are still in California. It's earlier than the last episode we recorded. What time is it now? It is twenty-three minutes past seven. Wow. Please. In the morning, I hasten to add. <laughs> well, because it's not real of the night for me. And for once, actually, because we had a winter in London for the past three weeks, uh, two and a half, actually, I was here. Well, you probably don't have that, right? No, it's been beautiful. We had a very warm summer, and I've been soaking up every ray that I can <laughs> before oh, yeah. I come back oh, yeah. to winter, as you said. So, yeah, no, it's, it's been great out here. Flash flooding yesterday in the UK. Oh. Um, it was raining for the whole day. I felt like I was actually in Asia, Southeast Asia, only that you know, the rain is cold and not hot like in Southeast Asia. Uh, that's why I'm actually leaving next week again to Singapore and Manila just to have, uh, you know, the same rain, but actually the hot one. So let's start our little tour of the world with the US since you are there. I know you just flew JetBlue. I want to hear about that. But before you're talking about JetBlue itself and the experience inside, I want to hear about what happened to your bike. My poor bike. Yeah, so I... I... <laughs> The reason I flew to on JetBlue is I flew out to Boston for the Pan Mass Challenge, which is a, a bike ride that's been going on for 38 years and has raised $560 million for cancer research for the Dana-Farber wow. Institute. Wow. My, my youngest brother has done it. For, he did it last year. His father-in-law, this was his 18th in a row. Wow. And the one that we did is 90 miles on one day. And there's a two-day one, which is, I think, about 195 miles. And I've been training on a bike in the UK and I wanted to bring my bike with me. So I got this TSA approved case. Yeah, it looked uh, nice. Give me a picture. It looks yeah, it's very clever. The The wheels come off and it sits on a little metal bracket. Is it, um, is it a, 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 a shell as in, is it like, or is it like soft? It's soft, but it's quite clever because when you take the wheels off, you slot the wheels in the side panels and they provide protection for the frame. Oh. And the the, the frame that it sits on inside is is metal and, and pretty impressive. I, I liked it and it was incredibly well reviewed. And British Airways brought it out and it was fine. There was a little bit of just, you know, things that needed to be realigned and tweaked and all of that. But then when I <laughs> <laughs> I got it ready to take to, to Boston and and I hasten to add this has nothing to do with JetBlue. 
I was sitting on the plane. I checked my bags in and all of that, sitting on the plane, looking out the window. Oh, look, there's my bike. They're loading it onto the plane right now. <laughs> as it went crashing to the ground from the, from the luggage cart as the guy tried to maneuver it. And I was like, oh, that looked really, really hard. And when I got to <laughs> the Boston, one of the, the pegs where the gear shifter and the breaker attached, it had shifted. It was not bent. It, it just swiveled on its position. Cool. But when I bent it back, it was really hard to do, which showed how just how much force must have been on it. So, But oh, wow. that, uh, that was fine. That didn't really affect me during the ride. But on the way back, <laughs> this is the bit that I still, that's still very funny to me. Now it's funny. At the time, it was everything except funny. I got off the plane, went to San Francisco baggage claim, and I asked the baggage supervisor who was there right by the carousel, will my bike come on the carousel? like it did in Boston, or will it come through to a special area for oversized baggage, as it so often does in San Francisco? And he said, I don't know. And that was my first big red flag going, if the baggage <laughs> supervisor doesn't know where oversized baggage goes, then I'm worried. So he said, I tell you what, why don't you wait for all the bags to come off the flight? And if it's not there, I'll make some calls. That was the second red bell. Two and a half hours later. Oh, my God. No one knows where my bike is. No uh, one can find it. I know it's on the plane. I know it's very close to me because I have one of those tile trackers. Oh, nice. In the saddlebag of my bike for this exact reason. So they're like, oh, we don't even know where it is. I'm like, it's like within a hundred feet of us, guys. This it's it's gotta <laughs> be somewhere. <laughs> and it's I was like, it's either below us or above us. Above us was departures, below us was baggage and customs. It wasn't until the JetBlue station manager stepped in that something was done. And he was fantastic. Within five minutes, he's like, I bet I know where it is. I bet it went up the wrong baggage belt and is now in the restricted area in customs. We as JetBlue don't have any international flights out of San Francisco, so I don't have access. But let me make a call because I'm 99% sure that's where it is. Sure enough, five minutes later, he comes around the corner with my bike. And that's exactly what had happened. It had gone up wow. uh, the wrong belt into the restricted customs area. But it was a little frustrating that it took the most senior person. And frankly, you know, JetBlue have quite a few flights out of San Francisco. I, I'm sure he had more, you know, bigger problems to deal with than my lost bike. But before I even said anything, I never complained. I never raised my voice. I was never angry. Of course, I was probably visibly frustrated. He's like, I've talked to my colleague here. We're going to give you $280 of JetBlue credit for your time. And then he said, I know that doesn't go anywhere near compensating you for your time, but it's just a gesture of our goodwill because we know that you're a frequent traveler with us. And I was impressed because that's not a small amount of money. Yeah. And the way that he framed it and positioned it, I thought was was very, very nice. It Again, it wasn't JetBlue's fault. It was their ground handling company at San Francisco. They have a third-party ground handler. Uh, would I transport my bike again? Well, I have to, to get it home, so yeah. But um, unless you have a hard case and that those are A, more expensive, and B, a lot more time-consuming to pack your bike up, it's going to get a little bit bashed around just by virtue of the fact that it's got to go through the baggage system. So yeah, that I think my bike had more of an adventure than I did on this little sojourn to New England. <laughs> Before we go to the actual product inside, because I've never flown JetBlue, so I'm very curious. Yeah, well, I, I understand your feeling. I've never flown a bike. I've flown animals. I've flown cats. It was in yeah. Europe. And it's super stressful, especially when I saw one of my three cats. I recognized the cage I had uh, bought on the tarmac sitting there for almost two hours 
And I was like, the poor cat doesn't have your earplugs and must be listening to all yeah. these sounds. And, and then you're like, oh, will they turn out the heat, you know, in this front part of the cargo hold? And I, I was going to the pilot like 25 times. Anyway, I, I understand how stressful it can be. And that leads me to my second remark. Is it not strange that uh, some airports have everything like that automated and means that here somebody must have put your bike in a wrong belt? Yeah, especially with oversized baggage. There's no way that it's just going to get put on with um, with all the other baggage. And I think actually that was the problem, is that because JetBlue comes into the international terminal at San Francisco, even for domestic flights, yeah, the probability of, an, of a mistake like that happening is very, very high. So when he said his theory that it had gone into the customs area, I, I, was, I thought, of course, um, that is the most logical explanation because the customs area was literally on the other side of the wall from us, which is why my tile app was being picked up. They had to call in a favor, not even call it a favor, just call a contact within the customs team to let them through to collect it. And then they had to inspect it because it had gone into the restricted area. But yeah, I think, you know, animals, one would hope, go through a different process altogether than by, I mean, a bike is just a bike is just a bike. You know, if it gets damaged, just travel insurance will take care of it and you can replace it. An animal, yeah, well, it's a living, breathing thing, and you would hope that they have separate protocols. But yeah, it was an an eye opening. I kind of wish I'd strapped a camera to it, you know, <laughs> yeah. when I left to see what actually happens. Yeah. So tell us, how was uh, the flight? So did you fly what? Did you fly an economy? Did you fly business? What did you fly? I flew Mint, which is their uh-huh. transcontinental business class product, on an A three twenty one, and it was superb. Oh my Absolutely. God. Tell us, tell us, tell us. Superb. So it was a suite. So I had my own space with a door. What? And remember, wow. this is on an American carrier, transcontinental on an A321. I had a six foot eight lie flat bed, big old screen. Uh, and like I said, a, a door that closed to my own area. Wow. Four, at least three power outlets, separate power outlets. And enough USBs to power every device I've ever owned. Uh, live TV and and free internet, high speed Wi Fi, both of which are are available throughout the airplane. And actually, so even actually the, high speed. Yeah, perfectly fine. Oh wow. Yeah, uh, and free Wi Fi and, and free live TV are available throughout the airplane. So even if you're economy, you get that as well. The food was outstanding. They partnered with a, a few New York culinary institutions, including some of the Momofuku brands. So because it was a night flight, they gave you this sort of three course on a single tray. Um, and it was delicious, absolutely delicious. And then when you land, they give you a, a bag to take with you with a, with a hot bagel, a hot everything bagel, some juice, some coffee. Really high quality stuff. That's really cool. Uh, is it a five or six hours flight? It was five oh five on the way there, six oh five on the way back. Yeah, so just slightly not enough to actually have a good night of sleep. And also, I guess this is why they give you this handout at the end to leave you sleep until the very tail end of the flight. Exactly. And they have this little button that sits at the top of your seat where you press it. And it, if it's illuminated, they'll wake you for meal service. If it's not, they'll leave you be. That's so smart. It is smart. I'm amazed that no other airlines do this, especially when you have a, you know, a reasonably compartmentalized business class seat, as pretty much all of them are. Um, is it like a one-to-one configuration? Then? Correct. Okay. Wow. Yeah. One-to-one. So you. So not not all the seats are this sort of suite or throne. Oh. But I. So I had the throne, the suite on the way over there. 
uh, this like again, all the seats have this very, very effective massage function as well. I got a good amount of sleep. Um, the service was outstanding. I was addressed by my name the entire flight. Everything it was just so good. The amenity kit, wow. the pillows, the, the the duvet. It was better than most of the intercontinental business classes I've flown in in recent years. On the way back, I was in a kind of a pair, you know, two seats next to each other. And it was just as good. You felt just as private. Um, it was a day flight, so I had a lot more time to play around with all of the the features. It was spectacular. Just a wow. truly world-class business class product on an uh, American domestic flight. I would I would pick them every single time and twice on Sundays. Just so good. Well, then I hope that they actually start this plan of going from New York to London, right? Which is one of the rumors yeah. or plans they've been having for quite a while because I, this is not something you see every day. Oh, wow, I'm so jealous now. <laughs> no, no. And they're good anyway, JetBlue, even on even an economy. Just having the live TV, having the big screen, having the free internet just, just makes it go a lot faster. I was just so impressed by them on all fronts. Every component of the service was truly world-class. Who are they affiliated with for freaking Frial Miles, you know? Emirates. Okay, yeah, well, I've seen that on Emirates, true, actually. Emirates, wow. South African, oh, Cape, Cape Air, because that's sort of the regional carrier in the northeast of the US. Uh, those are the ones that they promote at the moment, but certainly I know they've got a strong tie-up with, with Emirates and South African Airways. Okay, so it means I might be able to use my Emirates miles and Skywards uh, if uh, next time I go to the US, so I will try that. I need to try that. <laughs> Just for the yeah, sake of I mean, trying it, was, it. <laughs> it was good value too, considering the length of the flight, and and it just makes the business class. Pro and I was thinking about this as I flew. I'm like, man, this really puts uh, you know Club Europe and all the other regional carriers to shame. <laughs> but 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 only available on A321s, and even then on the Transcon, so minimum of five hours. Well, it makes sense, actually, right? It does make sense, you know, because they have a, a big A320 and. E-170 and 190 fleet that they use for, you know, Oakland to Long Beach. And you're not going to need that product on that. Absolutely. And you can't do, I don't think, that level of, of fleet segregation, if you will, in Europe, because you need an A320 to do London to Leeds. And then my father just did uh, Paris to Amman, Jordan, which is, you know, pushing six hours in an A320 as well. So I don't think it's fair for me to compare club europe and what i think it would be fair to do is something like the other american domestic carriers and anything that's running transatlantic is that's a fair comparison the flights are pretty much the same length yeah i think uh, delta is coming up with this delta one which also will have feature yeah. a door uh so we'll probably you know competition is good we always say that so probably we'll see that in for transcon i mean you guys will see that for transcon i really do transcon myself i usually limit myself to the East Coast to the US, but uh, yeah, it's good. I mean, I, I, and again, I repeat what I just said. I really hope that they come doing these flights from New York to London one day because that would be a great excuse to fly them. I would strongly recommend it. And I would be interested to hear other people's experiences if, if you've flown JetBlue, but, but particularly Mint, if you had a similar experience. And for those of you who live in the US and we have status on one of the big uh, three airlines in the US, know that uh, JetBlue is currently running uh, a status matching promotion. So if you have high status on any of the big ones, and I think also like maybe on smaller ones, you they will match your status. It's uh, I did not know. 
yeah, it's okay. summer. I think the, the promotion is called Summer Mosaic. I don't have it in front of me. If you just go on, on, on jetblue.com, the website, you'll be able to find that. So that's a good excuse to be directly on high status and, well, try. Uh, staying in the US, you know, every time we talk about United, we have to see something good and something bad. <laughs> well, yeah. they just they just ap- apologized uh, because since I was talking about pets earlier, they just apologized of killing a dog, actually. So, I mean, again, oh, <laughs> no. uh, I, I you never know. Again, like you said you, yourself, you know, sometimes it's the ground handlers, obviously, because you're ticketed on United or wherever. Uh, they are responsible of the entire supply chain, if I may use that term. But that happens. That freaks, uh, that would freak me out. Uh, but yeah. uh, I want to say something good about United is that uh, since they're retiring all their 747, uh, the last one will be retired at the end of the year, I think December. They've done something cool if you live in the U.S. You know, 747s were usually uh, used for uh, international flights. So meaning that a lot of Americans that might have not have flown uh, internationally might have not might have never actually flown it. So on July twenty eighth. They flew, I think it was from Chicago to San Francisco, actually, where, near where you are. They flew one of their 747-400s to allow you know, regular people in the U.S. to try it for the one last time. And that it's pretty cool. Nice send-off. That is cool. And anybody, anybody who uh, gives the uh, 747 the platform it deserves is okay by me. Yeah. So I'm glad that they do that. <laughs> and you know, I think it really reinforces the impact that the 747 has had on the traveling public's imagination. Yeah. And, that it's been given this reverence and an and appropriate reverence as as it's being wound down as a as a mainline uh, mainline jet for so many so many airlines it is sad but it's also i think appropriate that so many people are paying respects in this way I, it's it's this isn't the first story that we um cathay did it and a lot of other airlines that yeah, have, yeah. that have moved on from the 747 have paid their respects and i like that i think it's that's that's a good thing and I like this one, especially because they allowed regular people to fly it. It was just not a send-off for, you know, PR yeah. reasons and, and, and staff, which they probably That's do great by the point. at the end of the year. They probably do that on their last ever flight. But this one is, was open for the greater public to to use without a passport. And I think it's it's a good idea. And uh, to make a comparison, no one is making any send-offs with the A340 <laughs> No, that's true. A lot of people, are, especially the 343, it's kind of it's yeah, you're right actually that's a really good point that no one this, well, no, no one wants this plane anymore right no no <laughs> i mean it's no <laughs> <laughs> but the, i mean it's, it's never been iconic around. no as a note let's remember uh because you know sometimes obviously uh when uh, we talk to people based in the u.s they're very proud about boeing but not a single u.s carrier has bought the 747-8 so well you know yeah. Well, I mean, I get it economically, but it's still sad that they haven't. Uh, a bad news about United, because we have to go there, because we cannot just say something good. I'm sorry, guys at United. This, I mean, there's many stories coming out of the USA. We don't cover them all, because it would be like, a, a, we could do an episode a day about something bad happening in an airport, in an airplane. But that one, you know, we've, we've been talking about, you know, these new fares, all the airlines are introducing, like basic economy and ultra basic yeah. economy. And so basically, you, you're segmenting, every seat in the plane with different pricing. And that is leading to some, like what just happened, there was this, uh, I think it was a mother and a kid, and the seat next to them in economy was free, so there was no one sitting there, but the flight attendant prevented the mother from putting her kid on it, saying, no, 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 somebody would have paid a good amount of money for that, it's a premium seat, you're not allowed to stretch. What is this world coming to? That's insane. That's insane on so many levels. One, just generally. But second, 
I don't know if it's policy or if this person was on a power trip, but there's no way that frontline staff, especially in-flight crew, should be having to do revenue management yeah, for I the airline it. or enforcing revenue management policies. That's just when when it's wheels up, it's wheels up. Who you know, you can't move between cabins and that's fine. But to suggest that someone cannot stretch into the seat next to them is just bizarre. And I'm sure that anybody within that airline's revenue management team would also agree with that. Absolutely. And I remember fondly when I was flying in the U.S. as a kid, having, uh, you know, these three seats, a full row for me as a kid. And it was nobody ever told me not to, you know, lie down on the transcon. And I don't I really honestly don't understand it. It's uh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, if, if, if someone had said to my kid, you know, uh, or me saying your kid can't uh, someone would have paid a lot of money for that seat. And I said, well, when they show up, I'm happy to give them the seat. But until then, go away. Well, your kids are destroying BA seats. That's different. Yeah, <laughs> my youngest, my youngest son is uh, his his superpower is other than identifying Cold War British jets is projectile vomiting. So um, <laughs> it's like if you want to take him, you take him. But uh, I suggest not getting anywhere near him. <laughs> so still in the US, a lot of confusion. Uh, one thing is for sure, the laptop ban is lifted. The US has confirmed it. So none of the airports in the Middle East, especially in Africa, have this restriction anymore. It's still the case though in the UK. You still have to uh, bag, especially for instance, uh, Istanbul or Beirut. You still have to put your laptop in the checking luggage. And there was a bigger confusion because TAP, uh, the Portuguese airline a few weeks ago came out with, I think it was a Facebook update, telling like, oh, now laptops will not be authorized in checked-in baggage to the US. And people are like, what the hell? So it's the exact reverse of what we had. So now you don't have to put anything. Then uh, somebody at uh, in the U.S. said, no, 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 this is not true, but, and that's where the confusion comes from, but we're not telling you the new rules. So basically now the only thing we know is that the U.S. is implementing new vetting procedures. They're not telling the rules probably because they don't want, you know, to give hints to terrorists, but it leads to a lot of freaking confusion, which I've, ex I've experienced lately in, in actually in airports. You see that... The security measures have increased, but you're not sure which are actually valuable or not. Have you have you seen anything in the U.S. yourself? Or no, I mean, I, I I have TSA pre, which I have to say is just a wonderful thing. I was through security on both in San Francisco and in Boston, which are busy airports, in no time. It was a breeze. It's so easy, but I do feel really bad for the airports who constantly have to amend their protocols and and educate the staff about what's okay today and might not be okay tomorrow. I haven't seen it directly, but the airports have my sympathy because it must be impossible to keep up with these rates of change, especially at airports like like JFK and, and Atlanta and uh, O'Hare, these huge airports where you've got thousands of security staff that need to be briefed on the situation, which seems to change every day. The protocols were not uh, disclosed to the public, as I just said. But what we know is that it's a mix of new measures of sniffing dogs, explosive trace detection, a swapping, of course, of luggage for chemical traces, 
physical inspection of electronics. This means that it will access electronics. And this is why TAP probably wrote that. They said, okay, if they want to see all the electronics, they have to be readily available. Where in the check luggage, that would mean that whoever, for every airport in the world that flies to the US, they would open the checking luggage. So this is very much unclear. It's clearly, again, against terrorism, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS, and et cetera. But I mean, it's, it's, it's not easy. And like you said, for airports and airlines, because airlines have to say something to their passengers. And I, I wouldn't be very happy if I see that my luggage has be tempered with uh, when, I mean, I never, almost never check in. But first of all, I would never put a laptop in. But even, you know, I would not feel completely yeah. comfortable. Well, I mean, so often, I, I would say 90% of the time I travel from the U.S., I will be unpacking my checked bags at home and there'll be a little note yep. from the TSA or whoever's uh, their rep is saying, we've searched this and then signed by the person that searched it, which in terms of accountability, I actually quite appreciate because I certainly haven't had that out of any other airport uh, yeah, like except that. San Francisco. So they are more often than not hand inspected or, or tampered with, but you're right at the same time, it's a strange situation. And again, we've mentioned this in, so, in episodes in the past that if they're doing it because they're acting on credible intelligence, then they're doing what they need to do. But at this point, it's how it's been implemented and how that implementation has been so fluid. It's hard to know what they're doing. Yeah. The only thing we know is that uh, it's increasing in the fall. That's a deadline. And that I think Reuters reported that they will also require more uh, passenger data or face sanctions. So any airport authorities that do not provide more data about passengers uh, that are flying to the US might face sanctions. Obviously the passengers might not be allowed to fly. So we'll see where we'll, we continue to monitor this. Uh, it's, I get it, we get it. We never actually said that these measures were, were not good as in we understand the safety concerns. It's just that the uncertainty is not easy to deal with as passengers. What can you actually bring on board? What do you have to put it? Will I be able to keep my laptop or camera with me or not? It's that, these are yeah. the kind of questions that are not easy to answer people who rock up to the airport and are denied something that they thought they could do because someone hadn't updated the website to reflect the latest and greatest policy change. I think you're going to have a, quite a few situations where people are disappointed or frustrated or thought, oh, brilliant, I've got 12 hours to work on the plane. And then they get to the gate or to check in and say, give me your laptop. <laughs> yeah, added to the confusion, there was another article I uh, that it was from the ACLU that said that the TSA testing new requirements, asking passengers to remove books and papers, like what? even more stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then that got out. The TSA denied it and said, no, 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 we're not. But the next day, the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security said, well, we might actually ask passengers to put papers in a different bin. So again, it's uncertain. And again, this is the confusion. We don't know whether or not we will have to do it. Obviously, at, you know, when you're like, lining up, you will know. It clearly also raises some privacy concerns. Do you want actually everyone to read what you, the papers, I don't know, could be, I mean, is anybody using paper anymore? I don't know. But I mean, I mean this is yeah. interesting that they were trying even that. I don't know what you can hide in paper or books. It's Again, I, I'd love to know what information they're acting on. It's just crazy at the moment. But again, on the implementation side, I experienced, I did not experience anything different in Heathrow or in Boston or San Francisco or at LAX when I flew down there, although that was an inbound flight, uh, or Oakland where I flew out of uh, to get down to LAX. So I haven't felt any manifest changes in 
how we're, or maybe I'm just so numb to it that I just didn't <laughs> even notice in the first place. Just, that's possible. But good for the TSA, you know, they, they are criticized a lot for, you know, the extreme pat downs they're making. And they've just uh, launched a competition, a uh, tech competition. They, I think the the price money is $1.5 million asking uh, Holy people like you. I mean, we're not that much of geeks. I mean, we're used to code, but it's a long time ago, to come up with better algorithms for the scanning machines to say, we want to reduce the rate of false positives. So we want to uh, making sure that when we are actually patting down someone is that the machine truly detected something odd and not having these a lot of false positives. So good for the TSA to actually do that. I like that, that idea. Yeah, at least they're being proactive because it's just, it's a, it's a necessary evil, the whole thing. And if there's any way you can make it slightly less dehumanizing, then I'm all for that. Yeah, and I think the first prize uh, is uh, half a million dollars. So guys, if you think you have coding skills, just go on the website. By the way, I've promised that I will get the show notes back in August. We're still in August. I still haven't done it because I've been flying all over the place, <laughs> but I will because we, I've had like, feedback of people saying, oh, this is so cool. I mean, I want to know more. And then they don't find anything on the website. So I promise you guys, by the end of the month, all the show notes for all the past episodes, including this one and probably the next one, will be on. Uh, since we were, you just mentioned that you flew Southwest. Uh, so did you get that 737, 737 or not? <laughs> no, unfortunately, I didn't. Although my plane was, again, in the, in the last few experiences I've had with Southwest, nearly brand new, certainly less than a year old. I love those guys. Anything shorter than two hours and I'm all over Southwest. They just are fantastic. Everything is straightforward. The in-flight service is almost universally warm and genuinely friendly. They have a, a, a free streaming service of live TV and then you can pay like five bucks for internet or something like that. But I, I love those guys. I think they're great. We were on time. It's easy. The boarding process takes a little bit of getting used to, but I think once you've mastered it, it's, it's fine. I haven't flown Southwest in forever, so. Uh, but uh, did you not say that it's everything that EasyJet should be? Yes, absolutely. But I don't know if that's a if that's an American customer service cultural thing or if that's a corporate culture thing. Perhaps it's a mixture mixture of both. But I just think they have a consistent application of their brand promise that I've rarely experienced in any industry, let alone airlines. And I'm sure that people have had bad experiences with Southwest. It's an impossible not to when you're dealing with that many airplanes and that many flights. But I really like those guys. And for Oakland to L.A., I wouldn't I wouldn't choose anybody else. Not in a million years. And you went to L.A. to record an episode of Attaché. It's not out yet, but the teaser is super very cool. Uh, if you, yeah, if you, guys, if you just go on the Attaché, just do, uh, what's the name of the website again? Because I redirects to YouTube. So Attaché Travel on YouTube and or Attaché. AttacheTravel.net. Um, and if you, go, if you find us on Facebook, we, I think I put the uh, the teaser up there. But yeah, we uh, the highlight of that <laughs> trip by absolutely no question was we chartered a helicopter and yeah. flew wow. under the departing traffic at LAX at 100 feet wow. along the beach and then flew over midfield at 1,000 feet with 777s landing underneath us. My uh, God, that's amazing. So that was cool. So I think, Greg... I didn't know this, but when we, when I booked it, I told him, and I because I wanted to make sure he would be okay with going in a helicopter with the doors off so that we could film. Yep. And it turns out that Greg is a total helicopter fan. Oh wow! Like just freaking <laughs> loves him. So he, I think, I think the episode will be very uh, helicopter footage heavy. Even the <laughs> teaser was a uh, was a Terminator two. Uh, 
pastiche. So yeah, I think it'll be fun. But yeah, Robinson uh, R44 out of uh, Van Nuys Airport with the guys from Light Flight. I want to give them a shout out because they were they were really cool. And I think we were different to the usual customers they get in that we were aviation and film dorks. So we like flew right alongside the Hollywood sign and all over. It was fantastic. If you're in LA, look those guys up. It's surprisingly reasonable. I will definitely do it. I'm a fan of going over cities with helicopters. I've done it in Tokyo. Of course, obviously, I mean, Narita anyway would be way too far, but you're not supposed to go over uh, Haneda. Nobody would actually uh, not respect those rules. So sadly, I've not done it. The only time I actually had this experience was when I was doing flying lessons in Cyprus. It's a smaller airport. Larnaca will do it one day. Have, have we done it? I've lost track, actually, of the airports we've done on this show. <laughs> Again, well, we've done 58 airports, so we're, you know, yeah. we're going to have to retread some old ground sooner or later. And uh, yeah, and I was also like, you know, in a single engine and I was seeing all the places because we couldn't land back we had to wait for traffic to clear so we were circling and I was seeing all the and I have lots of footage as well from back then anyway uh, back on track the other thing something that will make uh, our friend Kendall very happy remember the Flyers Right had uh, requested that there would be a law submitted to Congress to limit the race to limiting um, legroom and width yeah. a judge uh, actually so Congress refused and now a judge said whoa, 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 whoa you have to look at it uh, he the, the, the words from the judge says this is the case of the incredible shrinking airline seat and <laughs> this federal judge uh, ordered the Federal Aviation Administration the FAA to review seat size legroom and commercial airlines so we'll follow up maybe uh, actually we could invite Kendall one of these days to talk about about this uh, I know that the uh, she always tells us that we fly way too much in the front of the cabin to understand uh, what people are suffering it's not true but it's uh, maybe good news. I mean, uh, we had that debate. We're not going to go there today, but maybe, Kendall, uh, if you or one of your colleagues wants to jump on a, on a podcast one of these days to talk about regulation for the airline seat, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners will be happy to know that there will be some law to limit uh, that race to sh the shrink cage of the seat. Yeah. Another news in the US, LaGuardia, which I think we've, I'm pretty sure we've actually never done that airport in our show. Uh, the LaGuardia, which is a dump. A lot of people hate that airport. Uh, has greenlighted the investment by Delta to build a $4 billion terminal. So uh, I think 37 wow. gates. So we, it's going somewhere. Maybe it will uh, finally look like a, a modern airport and not a third world uh, refugee camp. So, uh, yeah. well. <laughs> And they're starting. They're starting actually uh, this summer. The the, the work. So it's not something that's planned for twenty uh, uh, eighty five, like our runway here in Ether. It's actually something happening. So uh, good for them. Uh, yeah, and last one, since we're still in the U.S. for two more news. Uh, one, we've talked a little bit about Boom, that supersonic uh, yeah. new plan. And one other thing that prevented supersonic flights for a very long time was not the actual technology but was regulation of the supersonic boom. Yeah, the sonic booms. Exactly. And there is uh, currently a U.S. amendment that would clear that hurdle to say that because of new types of technologies, because the planes are doing less noise, et cetera, et cetera, this law that was passed, some people would say simply to ban the Concorde in the U.S., yeah. uh, this law might be actually repealed, which could actually help, whether it's Boom or anywhere else, it could actually help this uh, the supersonic flights coming back to the U.S. So it's good news. It doesn't mean that uh, 
boom, we'll fly tomorrow from London to, to New York in two hours, but at least it's a step ahead. That would be fantastic because we've said, I think, in the early days of this podcast that we wouldn't see supersonic flight available for the masses in our lifetime. And I think that they are uh, very quickly going to prove us wrong. And this is yeah. fantastic because you're right. It's so much of it. We, I think we've, we've cleared a lot of the technological hurdles and it's just wor working on uh, the legislative hurdles. But this is great. I, had, I, I did not know that news. This is wonderful. And uh, guys, I'll put the link in the show notes once the show notes are back. But they also, boom, revealed uh, how the seats will look like. Of course, they're mock-ups. Of course, it doesn't mean that the end product would be like that. But they look pretty cool. Maybe not as cool as Mint, actually, but they look pretty cool. Uh, so I'll put the link one of these days, I promise. So now, the, the big one everybody talked about. Where are these guys going? He's on a taxiway. That big story in San Francisco airport next to where you are, Alex. Uh, they're near miss. Yeah. This is insane. It is insane. It made it made front pages all over the world because it it was as we discovered five feet away from what would have been one of the biggest aviation disasters in history. Five uh, feet. That's it, less than two meters, guys. For those who don't know, units. Five feet. What happened was an Air Canada flight. This was about twelve thirty at night. And an Air Canada flight from Toronto was coming into land at San Francisco and inadvertently lined up, not with the runway, but with a taxiway where there were four wide body airplanes waiting to take off. And I'll explain why we think that happened in a second, because it's not 100% confirmed, but it's 99% right. sure that, that there's a reason for this. But the incoming pilots queried with air traffic control saying, we see lights on the runway. Are we, are we definitely cleared to land? The air traffic controller, and I'm paraphrasing the events here, but essentially the air traffic controller said, there's no one on, two, on 25 right. You're cleared to land on 25 right. What they had lined up with was a taxiway two, to the two, right of 25 right. To eight right. Oh, pardon me, 28 right. <laughs> Sorry, that's too late, right? Uh, I'm thinking of the air the airport that's about 150 meters from my in-laws' house um, <laughs> on 28 right, and then the pilots of the other airplanes who were obviously looking directly at this airplane because they were taxiing to 28 right started on the frequency saying, "What is this guy doing? He's lined up with the taxiway." <laughs> and taxiway Charlie, the, taxiway C, taxiway, taxiway Charlie. Yeah, taxiway Charlie, which is on the on the east side of the airport. And at that point, the controller issues an order to go around and the uh, the pilots had already initiated. But by that time, when you factor in the height of the tail of a Dreamliner, there was five feet of vertical separation between the landing airplane and one of the, the static departing airplanes. That's crazy. Uh, and there was a little bit of horizontal separation. But again, we're talking in, in feet here. So, and there was probably 800 to 1,000 people in those four airplanes, plus the pl people on the, in on the inbound airplane. And the theory is this, 2-8 left was closed. Yes, indeed. And so not lit up. Not lit up. So you just had all departures and uh, arrivals were happening on 2-8 right, just 2-8 at that point. And the pilots of the Air Canada flight had a combined flying experience of 30,000 hours which is not a small amount, uh, even, even for a commercial pilot. That's a staggering amount, actually. And my, my theory is, and I think it's, it's not yeah. completely unreasonable, is that they shot this San Francisco approach hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times before. It was programmed yeah, to see two, two sets yeah. of parallel lights, yeah. right? Yeah. Two, two bright sets of lights. In this instance, there were two sets of parallel lights, except 
Only one was a runway, the other was a taxiway. Let's, let's, let's still note for those who are not as much airplane geeks that know the lights on a taxiway are not the same that no, on not uh, even the runway. Any, They're even different colors. They're different, different colors. Intensity as well. don't have approach lights. Right. Uh, and, and I think if you're not familiar with San Francisco Airport, it's very important to point out that there's 2.8 left and 2.8 right. And they're, they're uh, alarmingly, if you've never shot the approach before, close to, to each other. They're yeah. obviously very, you know, more than it's a safe parallel. distance apart. Yeah, of course. But, but they are completely parallel. And so it's not out of the kind of realms of imagination to to see how they confused an active runway and an active taxiway. Uh, they were flying visual approaches, so they were not yep. using instruments. And that yeah, wasn't there was no guidance. Yes. Yep. There was no guidance, even, even though obviously they're both runways are ILS rated. Because it was a clear night, they were using visual approach. Mm-hmm. Um, right, yep. So this is the subject of a continuing NTSB in- investigation. And that's where this five-foot number came out. The initial investigation concluded that there was only five feet of vertical separation when you include the tailplane. So I, I think thanks to the uh, pilots on the ground chiming in, thanks to the air traffic controller for otherwise we would be in mourning at the moment because a lot of people yeah. would have lost their lives. So, yeah, so the, 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 the first plane, so there were four. The first plane was a United uh, seven uh, Dreamliner dash, yeah. dash nine. I think by the time Air Canada was above them, it has it had already turned in you know the little uh, uh, pathway that leads uh, where to wait to actually uh, be lined for takeoff. It still means that the tail in the tail of a, of a Dreamliner is about 55, 56 feet tall. It still means that it could have it. But the, the second plane that was behind it, which was apparently the closest one that Air Canada was to, was a Philippine Airlines Airbus uh, 340, which is mentioned before the three. 300 uh and that is where it could and also the tail of a three uh a 340 is 55 56 feet as well and this is where it was super super close apparently again the, the investigation it will take at least a year before we have all the parameters but apparently by the time you hear the go around order of tower the air canada pilot must have seen it because he's already pushing the thrust already so going around yeah seeing that there's two other planes in front of him there are two united uh, the first one i think is again a dreamliner and the one behind is a uh, 737-900 so and yes exactly he could if he had gone down so he would even if he didn't hit this uh, philippine airlines or and or the first united uh, aircraft he would have crashed right into the two other ones uh, with, of course, still a, a speed of landing. And that would have been at least, we're talking, what, uh, in, a, in, a, in a Dreamliner, is like 280 passengers maybe, and then a 737, maybe 180 or 190. And then that would have taken the toll to 600 people. <laughs> Seven. This yeah. is just insane, honestly. This is It is crazy. insane. It's, it's, it sounds like... Um, you know, from from my amateur perspective, it just sounds like a combination of otherwise innocuous circumstances right. combining to create a near disaster. Interestingly, that was we didn't hear about that right after it happened. It took a little bit of time for people to hear about that news it, to the point that uh, the flight recorder is not available for Air Canada. It had been already raised. You know, flight recorders have to, you know, you keep going, the voice keep... Yeah, uh, they have a buffer of a few hours. Exactly. So uh, the recorder had taped itself already by the time the investigators asked for it. So there's no data there. Uh, But it's... ah, 
Well, I mean, we're obviously very thankful nothing happened. The other, the other uh, insight here, and it was that there was a single uh, ATC uh, in the towers. So one single person handling all traffic. Was that also did, did play a role? We don't know. We'll learn. Uh, one person, I mean, when you hear, actually, by the way, I love the demeanor of, we don't know which pilot said that, like, uh, where's this guy going? He's just like with so much demeanor of like, Normalcy, you know, not like yeah. panic or anything. There's no panic in anyone's voice. Doesn't seem that the ATC was in f- at fault, but again, he was alone or she was. I don't know if it was a he or a he. I, I don't know. I don't know, man. It's yeah, I, I, I'm no expert in psycholinguistics, but uh, you're right. I mean, the uh, the pilots on the ground were were very sort of what the heck is this guy doing? And a sort of look at this look at this Joker. Yeah. <laughs> but then post when they went around, you could hear the. The tone yeah, of yeah, yeah. the Air Canada pilots' voices was very kind of tail between legs. I think we've just right. done something very, very wrong here. Well, we're thankful it didn't happen again. Yeah. Uh, it's like you said yourself, I think that, you know, we call that concept the normalization of deviance. You're so used to do something that at some point you, your eyes, your brain don't, don't, don't even compute if the settings are slightly different. You think it's still the yep. same. So that might happen. It might be fatigue as well. It just happens. We're still human beings. Well, we're, at some point, the NTSB will come up with a, but I mean, I just, wow. You know, because uh, as for a reference, because everybody says it would have been the biggest uh, ever catastrophe, airline catastrophe. The biggest one, of course, is the Tenerife catastrophe in 1977 where there was uh, a bomb alert in Gran Canaria airport. So no plane could land there. So it all stacked up in a very tiny, non-ILS guidance, nothing, Tenerife airport. And it was foggy. Uh, we're talking also like a long time ago with less, I'm not saying less regulation, but a lot of changes have happened since then. And a yeah, 740, uh, 747 uh, from KLM shouldn't have taken off, took off, whilst another 747 from Pan Am was taxiing and uh, clipped, uh, the KLM clipped the other one. There was, I think, uh, almost 600 people died in this uh, incident. And obviously here we would have racked the same kind of numbers. I mean, crazy. Anyway, uh, we'll learn about this one day. As a passenger, you don't feel anything. Just a pull up. That's it. Yeah, I don't think you would notice that much um, uh, as a passenger there, Canada plane, uh, or on the ground in the others. I think I'm sure that everybody got to the, the Philippines and Singapore and all those and never would have been none the wiser. None the wiser. Exactly. Uh, another, uh, I'm just going to skip quickly to Europe because and that's uh, Eric Hoffman, husband in tow, who sent us that news. Uh, whereas <laughs> there's a French. Pilot uh, for EasyJet that was caught having used ecstasy whilst flying, or at least having still the effect of the ecstasy. I don't know how that worked, but this is unbelievable. <laughs> and he was only, I think he was given like a 15 month suspended jail sentence as well. That's crazy. It's, 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 it is crazy. It's like, <laughs> I don't know what to say, honestly. Wow. Well, exactly. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's, that's yeah. I'm, I was speechless when I read that. It's like, how? 
How is this even possible? <laughs> yeah, well, at least the Arcana pilot was clearly not on that. Uh, talk, talking about another near miss, uh, in episode 50, we talked about uh, Narita and how the complexities of the airport. And one of the things I told you is that the one of the runways is not as long as the other. There, there has been an incident very recently, actually, when I think it's a 747 uh, freighter did not do the proper uh, takeoff as he should have, uh, took off way too late on the runway, and actually it, it hit the fence at the end of the, uh, the runway. Nothing bad happened, the plane didn't crash or anything, but still it hit that fence, which obviously belongs to one of the farmers, <laughs> which yeah. is against Narita. <laughs> so I'm sure that would lead to a lot of conundrums coming up. I mean, yeah, to see that. Uh, these near misses happened. I think there was even like an Emirates flight going to Seychelles lately that... Uh, misunderstood the order from tower and which height he should have been and uh, it was like on a collision course with uh, a shell or something i mean it, these things rarely happen they do but mm -hmm. thank god no plane has crashed lately for that so. yeah going to more happy news in the us that's very funny and very enthralling thing that Boeing did drawing a dreamliner in the sky. That was super cool. <laughs> oh, that was so cool. It was, and it was a really good drawing too. Yeah. It was like very like, you know, it, it, it was very accurate and it was like the size of the United States. It was not a small thing. And they, uh, it wasn't just a jolly. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't just a, Hey, let's go do something fun. They were testing uh, these new Rolls Royce engines uh, yeah, integration for the 78710. So it wasn't like they were like, you know, burning fuel for the sake of burning fuel. They had to do this, I think it was what, 17 and a half hour. Yeah, super long, yeah. yeah. Flight just to, to, they had to do it anyway. So they thought, oh, let's have some fun with it. And it worked because <laughs> it was such a huge thing, like within the aviation and AV geek community to watch this thing in real time. I don't. I hope no one watched it in real time. I, I almost did because I caught it when it was half done, uh, and I was like, "Wow, what is this?" And I then left the screen open to see the. I mean, I, I think I didn't see the entire <laughs> thing because night was coming up or something. But I mean, they, they've done it already. I think uh, in 2012 they had written in the sky 787, 787. why their logo, but it was not as well done. This one is the, the plane is superbly symmetrical, and yeah. you can recognize the Dreamliner there, right? It's yeah. I was gonna say. It's it's very obvious what type of airplane it is. It's it's very clever. It is a, a little tidbit that is interesting. It is if you look at it, the tail is actually pointed towards uh, South Carolina, where the 787 is being I did not assembled and built, and the nose is pointing towards Washington. When where you know the, the, the HQ, so it's really well, no, there's a, that's it's that's I had no idea that, that I, was the case. Uh, that's. That's cool. I'm, I'm just wondering how much uh, time it would have go to just a flight path planning and then submitting that, well, we want to draw a plane in the sky. Yeah. I wonder what altitude they were because I noticed they didn't have to deviate. There was no, there was, I mean, obviously there was no weather issues, but to be out of the way of other, I mean, when you look at the density of traffic in the U.S., I'm sure it was fine, but I didn't even look at what altitude they did it. Other good news, uh, we got more five stars uh, for our show. I want to uh, acknowledge the people who take the time and thank you for doing so. Guys, if you want to do it, you can. Um, the first one comes from uh, JezB underscore UK. The title is Great for Even the Armchair Traveler. <laughs> A really relaxed yet incredibly enthusiastic pairing of Alex and Paul make this show great listening. Thank you, guys. And we've been a bit uh, slower this summer to record. I'm so sorry for that. I'm an armchair traveler mostly, but the stories of traveling and most importantly, how you get there are great entertainment. See, Alex, people like our 
where we talk about how we flown, right? And yeah. we always like hesitating yeah, if it's not bad. bragging or not. Uh, another uh, from, hi, my name is Dave. Uh, hi, Dave, because we know you've been a faithful listener. Uh, and the yeah. thing says it all, 55 episodes and still here. That was written in June. This is about the 55 because of 58 today. The Layovers podcast continues to improve with each episode. Wow, that's really kind, man. Alex and that Paul cover general innovation news sprinkled with engrossing stories of their own recent air travel experiences if anything like me you'll be often envious <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yes yeah, thank you and uh, and that's where it actually hurts me i'm not so heavy you were not trying to hurting me but he says at the very end of uh, his lengthy review because longer than that uh <laughs> pro tip <laughs> google layovers to find the show notes yeah well i know <laughs> 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 it's a lot of work, man. I mean, yeah. you do all the editing for the show anyway, uh, and uh, then to try and compile all those notes, is this, that's, that's a big, that's another job. But I'll, I'll have them, guys. I promise you already on the show and I'll have them. Uh, there was also Peter Johnson uh, who quipped that uh, we talked in the previous, I think it was the previous episode when one of our listeners were listening to the KIX episode at KIX. And he sent us a picture of uh, somewhere in England, uh, I guess, uh, when he was listening to episode 57 and a picture of his dogs. Uh, so, Peter, the question is, do your dogs listen to layovers as well? <laughs> and finally, I want to also give a shout out to at Decryption on Twitter. Uh, he mentioned this because he said, wow, finally a podcast with chapters. So I'm very happy that uh, the extra work in oh, yeah. chapters is being recognized. And uh, I need to thank Peter Evans at Evans uh, PW, if I'm not mistaken, because he's the one who told Decryption to listen to us. So, guys, thank you uh, so much. Another shout out I need to do, I forgot in the last episode. Sorry, Bernard. I was again a uh, guest for Analyze Asia. Uh, it's a weekly podcast about everything tech and innovation in Asia. We talked about Cafe in Singapore. It's a 40 minutes episode. I'll put the link in the show notes, over, but uh, I highly encourage you to subscribe to Analyze Asia as an S, not the way the Americans write it with a Z, Analyze Asia. It's on every so thank you, Bernard, for inviting me. And uh, now we, we decided that I'm going to go there every six months to talk about what we talk every week or so here uh, with Alex. Uh, so let's go back to another near miss. I don't know if you heard about this one, Alex, because uh, I know that you've been very busy having a lot of barbecues whilst in uh, uh, in California. <laughs> another near miss. It's not. Remember, guys, I was telling you that uh, when I left Incheon, Seoul, the, the planes are avoiding uh, North Korea, but not not all planes are avoiding oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's this uh, Air France flight uh, AF293 uh, that you know the big story is if you're listening to any uh, news channel now, right now is this standoff almost between the US and uh, Kim Jong-un in North Korea uh, North Korea is running a lot of uh, missile tests and they're promising like nuclear warheads I mean we're not going to go there but obviously it's very tense well, they've just recently done a missile test, and according to data, and there's a video I'll put one day in the show notes, that this missile on the way down literally was a few minutes off that Air France flight. Wow. That's terrifying. I know, you know, you didn't, what happened to the Malaysian flight over uh, the Ukraine, or Crimea, I suppose it was, uh, you would never want to have that, a repeat of that, and that was alarmingly close. Yeah. Alarmingly close. Yeah. Well, maybe you can forget about this if you are in the Air France flight and you're using uh, this new VR IFE. Actually, Air France just introduced, if you're flying from Charles de Gaulle to Saint-Martin, uh, you will have, uh, it's a test, it's a trial, obviously, you will have 
VR IFE to like be completely engrossed in your environment. And we know that Qantas, I think, had to try that. Uh, I'm still not convinced about being completely. I, I like being in the flight and not like it's, but maybe I don't know. But would you do it? Yeah, uh, yeah. I th- we've talked about. I think Qantas did this. Yeah, exactly. Maybe yeah. 18 months ago, and I think that we we were both enthusiastic about the idea, but then thought it sounds like a great way to be motion sick. <laughs> you, I am much, I'm, I am motion sick with VR, even if I'm not on the flight already, right? <laughs> well, so yeah, there you go. Um, I, I I'm interested to see if anybody adopts this mainstream. I'll be fascinated to hear what Air France, even if it's not a trial, is more of a PR gimmick. But yeah. if it's uh, if any airline rolls this out when the price of headsets comes down to the point where it, it makes economic sense to do it as well. And right now it's only for business class, and that's another 340. So there, see, not everybody's ditching 340s. <laughs> uh, still, Air France, we talked about Boost. Uh, it's not called Boost in the air, it's called June. <laughs> J-O-O-N. It's a new airline. Another, you know, they have Hop, they have Transavia, they have, you know, they have June. So June is a millennial airline. I don't know what the heck that means. <laughs> I don't know what that means either. <laughs> It's it's a, it's a basic it's a low cost. It's a low cost with a, a fancy name. The entire marketing campaign is based on Instagram or something. Yeah, I I, they, I know they got lambasted for the name when it first came out, pretty much universally. But yeah, they've and I think by calling it a millennial an airline for millennials or a millennial airline, they just uh, poured more more salt on that wound. <laughs> <laughs> they, ha- they I mean, you're right. I mean, they've they've been trying for ages to come up with this uh, ancillary brand. They've they tried with Hop. They've tried with uh, a few others in the KLM Air France group. But I'm still not clear what that actually means, like a millennial airline. I know that they have um, come on, it's kind of fresh-looking uh, <laughs> um, uh, flight attendant uniforms. But <laughs> I think the cynic in me says that this is another way to try and renegotiate the union contracts. Well, that, that, that is the case to a certain extent because I think this airline uh, will use Air France pilots so they earn their union contracts but will not use, the staff will be probably zero-hour contracts. So that's already, but the whole market, I mean, you know, level didn't need to say it was a million airline. It's just uh, low cost. It's cheap. And I'm not saying cheap. I'm not saying it's cheap in the bad way. It's simply cheap to fly. And I think this June is tr- basically trying to say model, only they put this sort of... Uh, coat of paint on top of it saying, you know, the reason we're cheap, as in not expensive, is because we cater to a new lifestyle or something. But it's the same idea. Yeah, it is. It's definitely the same idea. And well, good luck to them on this particular venture. I, I know that the big airline groups have been trying to figure out the ancillary brand slash low cost carrier thing for ages. British Airways have been more and more vocal about their split brand. We talked about it if not in the previous episode and the one before that, and no one's really cracked it. Uh, yeah, true. But I, I mean, think it's impossible, but I look forward to being proven wrong. Yeah, I mean, and why not try? I mean, I mean, why not try? Uh, so, again, we have a slightly longer show. I'm going to go for one of our travels. I'm not sure I'm going to do both of the ways. Our show would be five hours because I've done a lot <laughs> of stuff. <laughs> I flew to Bangkok uh, via Singapore, uh, as in I needed to be in Singapore for one reason. I need to to grab my new MacBook. <laughs> <laughs> the saga of this MacBook is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I was, I, I, you know, I had two options. I could actually either get it in Hong Kong, which actually Hong Kong, so Hong Kong have one of the most cheapest price for Apple products. The US being always the cheapest. Singapore is also quite cheap. 
there's a few other places. And since I was going both, uh, so on my way to Manila, I was stopping in Hong Kong, and on my way to Bangkok, I was stopping in Singapore. I ended up doing it in Singapore. Why? Because in Singapore, they do in-store uh, pickups, so you can just go show up to the store and, and pick it up, whereas in Hong Kong, they don't. So my plan yeah, was, and I, got, I actually got offers from friends of their thanks to Hack Horizon. I know now people at Hong Kong Airport. I have friends that said, don't worry, order it, send it to me, and I'll deliver it to you at your gate. So yeah. thank you, guys. I'm not going to say who it is because I'm not sure it's authorized. So thank you very much, guys. Uh, so, yeah, I went. Uh, what did I do? I used the uh, Singapore Airlines. I mentioned that uh, a few episodes ago. Uh, travel up the guys who actually found me this great fair uh the one interesting bit because I, I think we already talked a lot about singapore it's that i've so i had the first bit uh, london so Heathrow to singapore was on a 380 uh very nice uh, i always take the bulkhead seat because the bulkhead seat have a larger zone to put your feet you know otherwise you're always sideways you know you have to put your feet on the left or the right side on on that yeah. one it's not the case the bulkhead you can see i'm tall I can actually move any way I want. And I like the bulkhead seats. Uh, ben Schlappig from One Mile at a Time, his favorite seat is actually the very, very last uh, seat on the, the upper deck because it's not only like a bulkhead, but it's like a solo. There's one seat, nothing, and then another row of seats. So it's... it's, it's ah. But that one wasn't available. I wanted to try it, to try it, but that was, wasn't available. Anyway, very good flight. Uh, we've already talked about it. The, the thing that is interesting is then I've done, the day after I was in uh, Singapore, I've done uh, Singapore to Bangkok with a 777-200. Uh, and it was, it was a very old product. So 222 and I, oh, yeah, I kind of send like, me the picture of this. Yeah, it very. I mean, you know, again, it's not. It's not a very long haul flight. You just mentioned that for mint, it doesn't need to be like a live flight for these kind of seats. But it was fun to see, and it was so old that, and that's just the, the the picture I sent you. That the the power sockets were still these awkward old, almost. I don't know how to describe. I don't know the. Yeah, well, I can't remember what the what the brand name is, but yes, they're they're this completely. Uh, proprietary socket that you need to buy an expensive adapter for and they never work anyway <laughs> by the way i have an adapter at home if i had known i no. mean I, didn't, I mean i have a battery pack but i mean i was like guys i would i've never actually used it yeah i used to travel with it which now i've given up because everybody has usb or at least I have a battery pack but that still exists and the, the other funny bit is that they had a projection screen in the middle you know like these very old flash wow <laughs> that is old school I couldn't even see the the safety video because the contrast was so bad that I couldn't actually not see it. But anyway, I know it by heart. <laughs> the, by the way, uh, Singapore, it was not the case, but they just come up with a new uh, safety video, which really uh, shows all the, the beautiful aspects of that city. Yeah, really? I just watched it. It's gorgeous. It's, it's really gorgeous, yes. I mean, we'll talk about safety videos in the next episode because there's a few ones that have come up uh, and uh, we won't have time on this one. So that was super cool. And again, then, I mean, I spent... Few days in Bangkok was with huge conference, super well organized. Alex, you're also a keynote speaker like me. You would have loved it in terms of organization. I've rarely seen uh -huh. that. Uh, I mean, we had a great, grand time besides the traffic. I mean, you know what? I've been to many cities in Southeast Asia and for a long time, I thought Manila was worse. And, and, and Bangkok used to be bad, but it's becoming even worse. We took like, I think, two and a half hours to do four kilometers at some point. Oh. Uh, yeah, so, uh, which well, I'll talk about it at the end of the show for the airport because that matters. It, it's, but a fantastic city. I had a lot of fun, a lot of great food, obviously. Of course, um, yeah. I hope one day you'll touch upon some Thai food on your Mastication Nation. Uh, yes, I'm still definitely. waiting for the next episode, by the way. Where is it? <laughs> so am I. <laughs> uh, so, and then on the way back, another 777-200. And this time, 
funnily enough, so uh, that's that's why it's interesting because I've I've done three triple sevens in three different era of product, and this time was uh, something that is very close to the the one you see on 380s. So again, this live flat, very big seat, you know. Too large almost, right? You're like, why do I have so much space uh, on my left and my right? I want to say something about that flight because it's probably the best crew I ever had, the best staff I ever had in wow. years. They were, you know, they came to salute every single passenger uh, by name. They were very, very, very good and very sheer, cheerful as well, you know, like light and entertaining. And I, I've rarely seen that. I mean, even on That's the way. That's so nice. Bangkok, that makes just the biggest difference. I remember on the way into Bangkok on that because it was apparently a change of plane. So we had an older 777. The guy behind me was, I don't know if he was a frequent flyer or not, was complaining. He was like, I'm not happy. I don't have a seat. Will you change the flight? I don't like that seat. I was like, my God, in my head, I was like, oh, oh God, shut up, right? Or something. <laughs> and I, the poor head of, you know, the, the, the crew was, was there and he was so well trained and handling that everything he said was perfect, not being, you know, rude, not taking it anything personal. It was, I was like impressed and how well they were trained, which is, you know, it sometimes com- contrasts with the stories we are from the U S and people would go in shouting matches and stuff. He was, yeah. He, 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 he changed the situation from something tense to something that worked, and the person even started stopped complaining. I mean, he was an old fart anyway. Sorry if you if you listen to our show, I didn't tell it to your face because I'm polite, but you were an old fart complaining for nothing. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and then Singapore, and uh, which yeah, I need to say something, Alex. Singapore is considered one of one of the world's greatest airports, and I'm sure you agree, right? Mm, absolutely. There's, there's one thing they need to change, and I, I forgot to tell it. Every I time think I know what you're going to say. The carpet. No, that's not what I thought you were going to say. You know why? The because carpet. Not the color. I mean, that's you know, that's taste. People might like it or not. I, I'm, I mean, I'm neutral about it. It's super thick and sticky, which means when you have a carry-on, it just doesn't go fast. You have to clearly pull your carry-on a lot, which in other airports where they have either marble. Or some kind of you know plasticky thing. It just goes. It's not the entire airport, but at the gates, maybe they've done it so that people, when they get into the plane, and since it's slightly bent, so that their luggage are not going too fast, you know. But when you go out of the plane, you're like, why is it going so sticky? When I have to pull, it seems that my my carry-on is five times the weight of. So guys at Singapore, everybody would listen. Just change the carpet, please. Anyway. <laughs> Took the uh, took the triple um, seven uh, back to London. That's and that's a refurbished triple seven three hundred. So, this is a very new, latest uh, business class, and that's really nice. Yes. So it's still very large seats, though. It seems to me that they're not as large as these three eighties that the previous uh, uh, version of the product. But man, it was a really wide seat, yeah. wasn't it? It's still very wide, but it feels I don't know if it's if it's actually not as wide or if it's simply by design the design of the seat that makes it feel. But it's still so it's still the same system. You still if you want to go to a bed mode, you still have to go up. And basically, you take the, the, the backrest and you, you put the backrest on top of the, how do you call that? You, yeah, I can't even imagine the, the word. But yeah, it basically, it's a reverse recline. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you. You reverse recline the you seat and it makes it the down. So that hasn't changed. The feeling of sleeping, I didn't have a bulkhead because there was none available, but so I had to, to sleep sideways. But honestly, 
super 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 nice uh uh it's a, it's it's a success i mean i'm still i still prefer the herringbone products of a cx of a cathay pacific but it's a fantastic product uh really nice to sleep again i'm tall if i mean it's always kind of the litmus test can i actually sleep normally on this and yes i could slightly bend probably not fully 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 uh but you know you tend to sleep on the side anyway when you have to sleep sideways yeah. by definition you, exactly the one thing i don't understand is uh, so they have a lock-in like you said for mint they have like now 25 different plugs everywhere one thing that's very nifty that also exists on the 380 you can plug uh, headphones both on uh, the, near the armrest or near your head on the other side, actually. So, I mean, there's... That's a good Yeah, depending idea. where you are, the cable doesn't run all the way. It's, it's, it's things like that. Are <laughs> they have a few USB for power and also have a USB to actually uh, align, so to actually have your content displayed on the screen in front of you. I've never uh, been able to get that to work. I never tried, to be honest with you. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. That's... Uh, but I mean, really, honestly, super solid, good storage. Uh, the storage in the previous version wasn't great. There was very small th stuff on the side of the screen. It was not really uh, practical. The new one is actually much, I think, much better. Less flimsier as well. So again, really good product. The one thing I don't understand: the screen is not touch sensitive. So you still have to that's use. That's weird. Yeah. It seems like nowadays, and not that I, I'm not complaining, but it seems that nowadays every single airline, when they install a new kind of IFE, have very super reactive touchscreens. This one you cannot touch. Yeah. You still have to use your remote control. I don't That's know. That's weird. What do you think? I'm sure there's a reason for it. But uh, yeah, you're right. It does seem slightly, uh, because it's not like uh, airline IFE remote controls have the best uh, interface. They're almost universally confusing. It's not, this one is not too bad. It's a, I still think that Turkish is one of the best. This one is not too bad. I mean, it's uh, it's very slick, very looks very nice. And the interaction is not perfect, but it's closer to what it used to be. Honestly, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a good one. Lots of content as well. I've seen the stupidest movie on my ever. It's called The Fate of the Furious. And uh, <laughs> and what I don't understand, Alex, and tell me, you know, maybe in the U.S. it's even stronger than that. Uh, have you seen a movie called The Belko Experiment? These guys no. locked in a tower. I mean, there's blood everywhere. It's like super violent, right? That goes. Anyone says a swear word, they bleep it. I'm like, in what world is blood and heads being chopped okay, but a uh, motherfucker is not? I just don't understand that. <laughs> It's a good question. It's a good question. I have I've, no idea. I have no idea. I have no idea. Anyway, fantastic experience. I'll talk about Singapore and Singapore Airline more in the next episode. And I'll also talk about the other trip I've done to Manila in the next episode because, again, we, we, want, to, we want to give you a little bit of extra you know, meat because we're not recording as much. But if I were to do the, my second flight, I've done my, well, my third or fourth for the month of July. But anyway, it would be way uh, too much. It would, it would reserve it for next, uh, for next time. One thing, though, just as I landed in Manila, I had a new feature. I don't know if you've seen it yourself. It's not exactly airline-related, but travel-related and Uber. And I really love it. And I want to say uh, thanks, Uber, for having implemented it. There's now an uh, in-app chat system. Uh, yes. That's so nifty. So I got it like three, four weeks ago, and I saw actually the news coming up yesterday or two days ago. So maybe I was you know, in a testing group or something. The thing is, I change SIM cards not often, but quite still, depending on the countries I am. I'm, I'm optimizing my data roaming, if you wish. And I don't mm -hmm. want to every single time rechange my phone number in the Uber app, and uh, which no, means that... Yeah. 
which means that actually I uh, my if I don't have my UK SIM card in there, and that's the number that is registered on Uber, if people were trying to call me and or to text me, I would simply miss it, or I would have to have my second phone with me, which I sometimes do, but that's not very convenient. The in-app chat is fantastic for that because for once, and I had the experience right in front of me. The the, the drivers sent me a, a message. I was like, what is this notification? I've never seen it. And it was actually in, in app chat and is really cool. So guys, I mean, I, I said on Twitter, uh, I think it was when I was in Manila, Uber has truly changed my life. And I, I know there's a lot of criticism about Uber and all these apps, but it has really changed my life as a traveler. I don't know about you, man, but yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, you know, setting aside the the yeah the other corporate issues in terms just in terms of pl- platform and product, it's a game changer for me. Yeah, no matter where you go, you can almost always depend on it. Anyway, so since we talked, uh, I think it was the last episode about the big news that Qatar Airways was uh, buying stakes in AA. Well, apparently Qatar Airways is not buying stakes in American Airlines anymore. They said, no, well, we change our mind, which is probably very welcome from American Airlines CEO. You must be very happy about that. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, we talked about this at the beginning, that it was such a power play move by, by Qatar to do to do this and not tell them and then, then find out and say, oh, we're not really American, weren't exactly thrilled and then for them to say, yeah, you know, we've looked at it a little bit further and nah, we don't really want to do it. It's <laughs> such a power move. And I guess the, la- the latest bit is that they're looking at JetBlue now. Yeah, that's a rumor. Yep, that's a big rumor. Uh, well, that would make sense. It would make sense. It absolutely would make sense. I I mean, so would American Airlines, I suppose, because they yeah, are an alliance partner, at least for the time being. No, they're um, not. American Airlines uh, uh, just said, and I think it was uh, two weeks ago, said that they will end all their court shares where Qatar and Etihad. Oh, for God's sake. I missed yep. that. That's so childish. Yeah. And that was just before <laughs> the announcement of Qatar was not investing in AES. So I don't know if there's any link whatsoever, but at least... That was a, re- a rebuttal from that intent of buying AA, maybe, but you know, they or maybe the other two big Jeez. American Airlines kind of tell AA guys, you're gonna, I don't know. Wow. Yeah. Well, I did. I missed that piece of news. That's uh, they're just as bad as each other. They really <laughs> are. They really are. It's just, ugh. yeah. I thought it was a a, a very um, ballsy move on Qatar's part to to make this this investment without even talking to the uh, the leadership team at American, but it was. Very typical of Al Baker to do something like that. And then to to say, nah, no, we're good. We changed our minds. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know, man. It's we we love and we said many times, we love Al Baker for his bold moves and he's outspoken. But sometimes he goes too far. Uh, have you seen what he said about, you know, all the, uh, I, don't, I don't have the quote in front of me, but it's something about, and he had to recuse himself and apologize publicly that all the flight attendants in the U.S. looked like grandmothers. Yeah, he, yeah, that was, it was unnecessary. I mean, yeah, even if it's a bit. thought you have in private, it's just unnecessary. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad that he apologized because that's the least he should have done. Yeah, and I think uh, American Airlines pilots, and that was also in the same kind of week-ish of the announcement that American Airlines would stop uh, co-sharing. Uh, they actually published an ad uh, in Ireland and other places about how Al Baker was not reasonable and was saying things that shouldn't happen. So there was, of course, it was. It's not just American Airlines staff deciding to do so. Clearly, there's a lobbying behind. I've been doing that job. I know how it works. But still, it was there was a lot of pressure. He had to re- recant, which is uh, not bad. Uh, mm-hmm. The two last things about Qatar, uh, I've not, first of all, I've not, I could have flown them many times in my past to go to Asia because I'm, again, I'm going even next week, but I, 
I'm still not confident, to be honest. One thing they had to do, uh, it's not completely linked with, with this, is that they just offered visa-free entrance for more than 80 nationalities. So you don't have to have visa anymore. I think the UK passport yeah, or US passport is 30 days and some other passport like the Swiss I've got is 90 days. Multiple entry, you get in. That's, you know, they have to, I guess, because they're being now having all these issues. This is good. That is goodness. That makes uh, the whole place a lot more accessible. And to finish, uh, of course, of course, we want to talk about it. And of course, a lot of people are going to pile on this for uh, because it's so hard to actually read into this. These creative accountings. That, <laughs> So, you know, the, if you've been a listener to Layover since the beginning, I think probably our 25th first episodes were about that, were about the fact that uh, <laughs> they're getting subsidies and who's getting subsidies and what kind of subsidies and la, la, la. And it's the same story between Airbus and Boeing, you know, Airbus uh, getting subsidies and Boeing getting like uh, contracts from, from et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This time, there's two articles. Obviously, they're the HuffPost. The Huffington Post is maybe not my primary credible source of information. And I'm not saying I'm denying the facts that are in there because we already said that we we do believe that there are some subsidies in the Middle East. Yes. But uh, the uh, a few numbers. Uh, Qatar first. We were on Qatar. Um, Qatar announced it's making profit, but accountants in the U.S. have remade the calculations according to standardized accounting practices and say, okay, the a full year 2017, so the fiscal year, sorry, 2017, last doubled uh, from, uh, it went from minus $358 million to more than $700 million of loss, uh, which is 7% of total revenue. Uh, and they say one of the ways they could announce they don't have a loss is, for instance, that they sold assets, plant, and equipment to uh, unidentified parties, which a lot of people suspect, obviously, are the state of Qatar. <laughs> To basically uh, for like almost six hundred million, so they were able to change that. Do you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, no, I, you're right. I think we've we've established from the beginning that they get they get subsidies. It would be very easy to go and say, oh, well, American Airlines got subsidies as well post nine eleven, but that that's not really what this is about. That's if we take this in isolation. I think I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. They don't release all of the necessary data for these people to have a concrete analysis of the financial position of of these airlines. But as you say, by using standard accounting practices with the information they have available to them, they can draw some some conclusions. And even if they're fifty percent off, the numbers are still pretty yeah uh, pretty huge yeah. Uh, as well. And that and it does, as you said, it presents quite a few unanswered questions with who is this this unidentified entity and what is the the financial contribution of the states uh so i you know it's it's it was a very interesting read i don't uh take the huffington post that seriously but the person that they be credible that that wrote the report is absolutely credible they're a professor of economics at georgetown so that anybody else has i don't know if anybody else uh has picked this up any of the other media outlets and have done their own scrutiny that will be well to see, but some of those losses are staggering. I think you yeah, you, you suggested that this is perhaps one of the reasons why the Etihad CEO had been relieved yeah, of his so duty. Let me go there. Let me go to this to the Etihad because the same the same professor wrote an article about Etihad in the numbers. I mean, Qatar are impressive, but numbers of Etihad is really like staggeringly impressive. Yeah. So if uh, he did the same type of analysis, looking at accounting, looking at what the actual results would be, and he says that in 2014 fiscal year, uh, the operating loss of Etihad would be 1.4 
billion dollars, and it received 2.6 billion subsidies. Again, I'm here. I'm saying using his numbers. In 2015, uh, the operating loss went to 2.6. No, 2.06. Sorry, 2.06 billion dollars. That's a lot of money, and that's even whilst the the, the airline was getting again, according to the author, 1.7 billion subsidies. And, uh, and then we go to 2016, and it's 1.87 billion, uh, half of which actually is a write-off from all the investments in Air Berlin and Alitalia, which is probably why, uh, like you mm-hmm. were hinting at, the CEO had to leave. I think he's still there as a chairman or something, but he's not the, the CEO anymore. Really? Wow. It's, 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 I mean, we always had this stance that for us, out of the three big Middle Eastern carriers, Emirates is probably the, I mean, of course, it's been there for a longest time. It's actually profitable. Actually, they probably maybe are as well some state aid, like you hinted at as well, like the different kind of state aid, you know, that somewhere else in the U.S. are being mm-hmm. subsidized to the, to, the, to the rate of $800 per passenger. So they are some, but are the most solid one. And Etihad and Qatar being newer are not as solid, but these numbers uh, are, are are pretty staggering. They really are. They they. I'm looking forward to further analysis on these numbers, uh, and I don't know if we'll ever get the the full picture because they don't release all of the information. But I think it's just furthered this this conversation, and it's a fascinating conversation as well about what where's the line? Is there a line for government intervention in state owned airlines? So. I'm sure that uh, I hope that other organizations and media outlets take a look at these numbers and draw their own conclusions, and other people look at the uh, the financial strength of the of these airlines and airlines in general. And you know, I think this is certainly not the last we've heard about this. No, clearly not. And uh, for reference, guys, remember that uh, U.S. airlines were announcing loss after loss after loss into similar amounts as well. Talking the billions of dollars in the mid to 2000s, for instance, some even before 9/11, so that they're not everything is pinned down to that uh, catastrophic event. So it's complicated, as we know. Making uh, yes. an airline is not when you get the richest, right? <laughs> so, <Yeah>. Complicated <laughs> business, right? <laughs> Uh, talking about complicated business, Bangkok Airport was a bit of a complicated business. Have you ever flown or been to Bangkok? Long, long time ago. Not in the last 20 years. Oh, so you are the old airport. That's yeah, interesting because uh, I, I don't know how to pronounce it, guys. I've had issues. I mean, I've, I always said to people in Thailand, try to pronounce my last name, and actually they succeeded. I had a hard time pronouncing theirs. Uh, so I'm going to try to pronounce the name of this airport. And maybe, Alex, you know better than me. Is Suvarna Bumi Airport. Maybe I'm completely saying wrong. If we have any Thai listeners or Thai speakers, please correct us. I really don't know how to say that. The name. So let's call it Bangkok International <laughs> Airport. I'm really yeah, sorry. So it's only, it's like slightly more than 10 years. It's not that old of an airport. There was another airport, which oh, there's still another airport, Don Muang International Airport. It's also an international yes. airport that was replaced it was at capacity, basically, right? They said, okay, we need a bigger airport because Thailand is a, not only a tourist destination, but it's becoming a very heavy business destination. And I've seen that when I was there. That was really impressive. They tried to acquire rights uh, for the lands, not as crazy a story as Narita, I think back in the 70s, but they couldn't. There was a lot of instability, but they ended up being able to acquire all of this just before the Asian financial crisis, so before the end of the 90s, which then delayed again uh, the investment for that airport 
So to make the story short, open around 2006 and then expanded, expanded, expanded to the point that 10 years in, it's already above capacity, <laughs> not only for the number of people in the terminals, but also the number of uh, landing and departing. I think it was planned to be 600 a day or something. It's already at 800, 55 million people, which I think it was planned for 45. You can feel it a bit. It's not cramped, but it's busy. Obviously, I was in uh, in the summer, as in where a lot of people probably from Europe or the US would take holidays in Thailand. So I don't know how that airport would be like in November, although for them, it's always in Southeast Asia. So it's always nice, which is why I'm going back next uh, week to Southeast Asia to have a bit of sun. But <laughs> it really, it feels, it feels busy. It feels busy. Is it a bad airport? No, not at all. It's not because it's busy. It's still, it is very new. It, it shows a little bit, 10, 10 years, but it's still very new. The one thing that is not great is uh, signage. If it's your first time understanding where you're supposed to go after your gate from your gate to immigration, and you know there's a visa procedures in Thailand. Most people have to actually have a visa. There's some uh, visa-free countries. Uh, it's not absolutely clear. I had something called premium lanes, which you can actually either buy or That's a good your, idea. your airline offers it, but it's really not clear where it is. They have a they have a map on the the little piece of paper they give you, and it. I know it sounds pretentious, but I, I don't get lost in airports. It still took me like a good ten minutes to figure out where it actually was because signage is not perfect. But otherwise, honestly, it's it's a solid airport. I mean, it's the airport you go again. Most people will know it because they go to uh, holiday destinations uh, probably. But it's a very very solid airport. But again, it's a capacity, so they're thinking of expanding it. Uh, and thinking of adding like a new terminal, which will go to like, I think 65 to 75 million passengers. It just grows really, really fast. And because they, they have this capacity, issue, they, they did reopen the one you probably saw, which is uh, I, I, Don Muang. They reopened it. So I think it was again, maybe six, seven years ago. At first, it was a very few flights. Then Air Asia went there. And then I think it's not a small airport. The other one has. No, it's big. 35 million passengers. So yeah. now it's actually also being refurbished and uh, probably a new terminal will also be added there. So we're really talking about, you know, there's a lot of demand to go to to the country and they cannot cope. The, the one thing that we sadly hear the news a lot about in this airport is that BKK, which is the main one which we are talking about today, is that they've been having a lot of issues with their runways. Yes. <laughs> People say maybe they've been built not on spec or using cheap material, but... They've been cracks. They had to shut down one runway. They have two uh, parallel, not as close as San Francisco, which we mentioned earlier, but two parallel on each side if you wanted the airport. They had to close them, you know, repair, open, and again, close them, repair. And it keeps going. It seems to be a never-ending stories of having to do. And to the point that Tony Tyler, whom we've interviewed quite some time ago now, uh, it's been almost a year, when he was uh, the, the chief at IATA, they had to step in. IATA stepped in and said, this is not acceptable because pilots, airlines are complaining that there are issues on the runways. Yeah, it was uh, went on for years as well. And there was, I mean, that part of Thailand and Thailand in general is is quite a uh, swampy yeah, very humid, grounds. Yes. And so there was, and they had issues with the new airport as well and with the old airport of, of structures sinking and bits of the uh, the tarmac and uh, collapsing on the ramp and, and and things like that. So it's been an ongoing issue. What the root cause is, I don't know. But yeah, they, they haven't won that battle quite yet, I don't think. The, the thing is interesting as well is that it's the world's largest passenger terminal 
that was constructed in really? one phase. It's not the fourth. It's the fourth largest. Ah, I think I the see. largest is uh, Hong Kong. The second largest is Beijing Capital, and the third is Dubai. They're the fourth, but built in a single go. That's the one. So they really like built that's this massive easy. thing in one single go. And now again, they're they're trying to expand it by creating a, a I think an addition. Not not. A, I don't think they call it a terminal. I think they call it like a concourse or like a satellite or something where they will add a lot of people. Right. Now, as a passenger, so I said, it's uh, a bit busy, uh, especially on the way out. Um, the one thing that, and coming back to what I said about Uber earlier, that changed for me is that, and it's also something, and I'm uh, please, my friends in Thailand, forgive me. The I, A lot of people used to say that the problem, and I experienced that when I went to Bangkok last time, which was four or five years ago, before Uber, if you want. The taxi thing was a bit shady sometimes. You had a lot of these unofficial taxis and people heckling you, do you want a taxi, 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 which I don't have a problem with. With, but it didn't give you a reassuring feeling. I don't care personally. I've been to an official taxi and never did die or something. So I'm fine. But it's true that you <laughs> expect, especially for a very highly tourist destination like this, something more organized. Is it better organized now in terms? It seems to be slightly, of course, better. It's, however, the drop off zone and pickup zone is not still great. But having Uber solves everything. I press a button. I had a car. The car picked me up and it was, I, I didn't even have to think about it. So that's, yeah, that's honestly, that's fantastic. There's also other. Uh, companies doing that. There's not only a uh, Uber, there's a Grab as well, which is very well known in the region, which works as well, super well. And traffic, uh, there's an expressway. So they build an expressway to the city because the airport is not that close to the city. If you're lucky, the expressway gets you there in about 35 minutes. If you're unlucky, it could take four hours. So <laughs> it's really traffic in Bangkok can be something really crazy, uh, which goes to the question of, is it good for layovers? I'm not sure it's great to stay there because there's a few nice lounges. I've been to one or two and they're nice. I would tell you go to the city, but then <laughs> if you're stuck for four hours in to go to the city, then you have an issue. So, uh, and a friend of mine actually experienced that. We uh, It was the end of July and the 28th of July is the birthday, the anniversary of the king. That shut down the entire expressway. It took him from... Bangkok Airport to our hotel, which was slightly west of the city. It took him five hours and 40 minutes. <laughs> How is that even possible? Yeah, because there was no expressway, so I had to go like, and everybody was going through the back streets and whatever it was. Honestly, I got lucky. I got in the city. I mean, I had a meeting with a super cool startup that does uh, corporate travel management called 30 Seconds to Fly. I'll talk about it one day. We might even invite one of our founders. So it was not exactly in the city, but it, it was super quick. But yeah, five hours. My God. That's crazy. Other than that, when you get back, when you want to uh, check in everything, it's also busy. I don't want to say cramped because it's not cramped yet, but it's a bit busy. Again, it was high mm. seas for tourism, but it's a good airport. I'm, I don't want anyone to do the little things I've said here to not understand it's a good airport. It is a good airport, but it's not to the standards yet of Singapore, Hong Kong, or Incheon. Uh, but I'm sure because we're, all the money they're investing in, in augmented, that it will get there because it becomes like all these Asian hubs, it becomes really big, 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 big hubs. So it's uh, yeah. impressive airport. So Alex, uh, you should uh, record an episode of Attaché there. I'd love to. <laughs> and then spend the rest of the time in a car trying to get out of the airport. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, again, a slightly longer episode and I talked a lot again. Uh, where are you flying next? Are you ever coming oh. back to the UK or you think decided to stay? Because honestly, the yeah, weather no, is... We, so, we so. did extend our trip a little bit, but we are back uh, next week and then lots and lots and lots of uh, regional travel between, well, for the rest of the year, it's crazy. 
Yeah, we, we talked about it off the show. And I'm not going to reveal where you're going, but uh, I know a few ones that are really cool. Even more stories to tell. Uh, as for yeah. me, as I hinted at earlier, I'm going uh, to Manila again in Singapore one day and then Manila for uh, four days. But this time, and that will be also in the next episode, hopefully, I'm flying um, so Swiss from London to Zurich, then Singapore Airlines to Singapore, then the next day again Singapore Airlines to Manila, and then on the way back I'm flying Cathay to Hong Kong, and Very then nice. Swiss the triple seven three hundred ER ah, with a solo throne seat. I'm really looking forward to that one. Sure. Back cool. to Zurich, and then a three twenty, I guess probably back to uh, London Heathrow. So a slightly different take than last time. I'll compare the two in the next episode, and obviously. But once I can reveal which one will be the airport for the next show, will be Manila because <laughs> we'll have been yeah. twice. So <laughs> it will clearly. And sorry, guys, because you know, a lot of people probably are telling us, guys, you're only doing Asia these days. That's my fault. Alex is not responsible for that, so please complain to me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, good luck with the bike on the way back, Alex. And uh, thank you, sir. I will let you guys know how it which state it's in when it arrives back in the UK. Which also will allow us to talk about BA. We have a lot of stuff to talk about BA in yes. the next episode. And until then, happy travels. Safe travels, guys. Mm -hmm.